2: Tonight, the eyes of a nervous nation are on the state of Georgia as businesses start to reopen.
3: Not only are you putting workers in jeopardy, you're putting guests in jeopardy.
4: Georgia reopens. But did anyone show up?
3: You're bailing us out. Just give me my money back,
4: Senator. A new fight breaks out between New York State and the top man in the Senate. I dare you. Also tonight.
5: Your guys' headline is, we're all in this together. I can't mix my personal funds and company funds, and I don't even have the funds to pay for that kind of payroll protection.
4: American business owners sound off about the difficult choices they have to make. This CNBC special report, markets in turmoil, starts right now. Here's Sarah Eisen.
2: Stocks rising today, rallying in the afternoon, but stocks did finish the week lower. The Dow S&P 500 and the Nasdaq all rising more than one percent, helping out a nearly five percent gain by Home Depot. Apple and IBM also up big today. For the week, the Dow was the big loser, falling two percent. The S&P off more than one percent. The Nasdaq ending slightly lower. Another problem coming out of this terrible mess, the government tonight estimating the budget deficit will quadruple. And as the landscape economically evolves, working from home could be one of the lasting changes for so many Americans. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is with us live. Good evening, Steve.
3: Good evening, Sarah. Yeah, everybody wants to know when they're going to go back to work, but we have some new data showing how they might go back to work. And that could be different from how it was and also mean some lasting changes to the economy. The CNBC states of play survey done with change research shows that nine percent of Americans are currently working at home. Fourteen percent, though, more than they were before. Nineteen percent working at home. It didn't put it all together. Forty two percent of Americans doing some work at home now compared to 58 percent who are not, mostly because their jobs require them to be at work. Looking at the differences among Americans, one of the biggest ones we find is an income gap there. 46% 46% of those over making over $100,000 in annual income, they're working at home. Just 24% of those making incomes below 50000 How about how productive they are? Very interesting results here. Fully 60% say they're as productive or even more productive than when they're in the office. And that leads us to our next next interesting finding, which shows that 24% want to work more from home when they can go back normally and 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 or entirely from home. 55% are going to return to work and 20% are not sure. Those are some pretty stunning findings if you're a commercial real estate owner or even if you uh, run a government and you count on the tolls and commutation. Sarah, apparently for some people, the commute from the bedroom to the bathroom to the home office beats what they were doing before.
2: So how do you think then, Steve, about the long-term economic impact if more people do decide, even when economies open up, that they can work from home.
3: You know, it's interesting, Sarah, what we've discovered with this shutdown is a lot of excess capacity for doing work. There's space in people's homes off home offices there's internet connectivity, there's computing power at home, that's excess capacity that sits idle when we're at the office. Depending upon whether or not we find we're more productive, it could make more sense for people to do more work at home. But also, if you're a commercial real estate person and you own a million square feet, and you may find that 20% of that is not needed anymore, that could be a huge economic impact.
2: Steve Leisman. Steve, thank you. to reopen today. That includes salons and barbershops, gyms, bowling alleys, and tattoo parlors. Dine-in restaurants will resume on Monday. Last night, here on the show, Georgia salon owner Kay Duffin joins us. joined us on the eve of reopening. He's back tonight. So how did it go?
7: Hi, Sarah. How are you? It, 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 it was Hi, a great Kate. day. Um, I think I can speak. Hi, how are you? I think I can speak for almost every hairdresser I know. Okay. It was a really good day. Um, It was interesting, different, uh, great to see all of our guests. um, And people are very anxious to get back into the salon. And I'm thankful for that. Um, We socially distanced. I was the only one working today. Um, I have one intern helping me and my manager was here as well. Um, And it was a a perfect day. I I really kind of enjoyed being back at work.
2: What sort of measures did you take? How did you change the experience for customers to make them feel safe?
7: One of the things that we normally do is offer beverage services, which we did not offer today. Um, One of our signature uh, experiences is that we offer a free mini facial, which we didn't offer today. Um, Shampooing was a little bit different. Uh, I saw seven guests, eight guests, um, and they were separated uh, an hour apart. Um, So we had plenty of time to clean and disinfect and and, uh, really sanitize the space for our next guest. So it was very interesting, but again, it was very good to be back and see our people. It was nice.
2: Were the customers nervous? What sort of vibes were you picking up?
7: You know, I didn't pick up on a nervous vibe. I really picked up on a respectful vibe. And it was really nice to see each guest come in with their own mask, their own gloves. Um, I think all of them are taking into consideration what we do and valuing it. And that's very nice. Um, I think they were as concerned for my safety as I was theirs. And that was a nice thing to see. I think they were happy to be back in the salon. They were happy to get their hair cut, of course, um, but I think it, it, was, it was very different, but it was very good. It was nice.
2: Thank you for coming on again and updating us and good luck. We wish you well, Cade.
7: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me.
2: Dr. Carlos Del Rio is the Executive Associate Dean of Emory University Medical Center, a renowned expert on infectious diseases He's monitoring the outbreak from the ground level in Atlanta. Thank you so much, doctor, for joining us this evening.
0: Good to be with you, Sarah.
2: So what can you tell us about where you stand on Georgia's reopening and and whether it's prepared with more businesses set to open on Monday, including dine-in restaurants?
8: Well, I would say that this is a bold move by the governor, and uh, I understand why he's doing it. He's doing it because of the economic concerns that he has. I mean, the economy in Georgia has suffered significantly as a result of this epidemic. But I, I I am worried that we have not met the requirements that the White House and others determined that were necessary. We haven't really seen a 14-day decrease in number of cases. And from where I stand in, in, in hospitals, we're not seeing a huge increase in patients. We're seeing a, a flattening of number of patients. We're seeing a slight sort of trickle of patients coming in. But I worry that that may be very different two weeks from today. I was very encouraged to hear your previous guests talk about the the things they're doing in salons to prevent you know, the social distancing, the wearing masks, the wearing gloves. And I wish people continue doing that, but I just worry about restaurants and I worry about other places. So I'm nervous, I can't tell you that I'm not, but we'll have to see what it is. But in the meantime, what we really need to work on here in Georgia is scaling up testing. We're, we're very low on testing. We have to do a better job testing a lot more people And we have to also scale scale up significantly contact tracing, which we really don't have at this moment.
2: Now, I was going to ask about those two factors. Where is Georgia in terms of its testing rate relative to the rest of the nation? And are there any contact tracing going on there where, where people are notified if they've been in contact with someone who's tested positive for the virus?
8: We are pretty low in testing. We're probably uh, in the lower third of all the states, and, and the percent of population has been tested. But I can tell you there's some very good ramp-up happening, and there's very good public-private academic partnerships. My own university, Emory University, is part of the effort of really scaling up testing, and I think we're going to do a lot of more testing over the turn couple of days. So I think testing is going to come up in a significant way. We have a ways to go. I'm not going to say that we're not, but I think testing is going to come up. Contact tracing is a different story. We we need to hire people. We need to really implement contact tracing. It hasn't been done, but I can tell you that a lot of the partners in, 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 in industry, a lot of the uh, Fortune 500 companies that let, that have are here in Atlanta are more than willing to help. And let's not forget, we have CDC here in Atlanta. This is the hometown for the CDC and CDC is obviously very interested in making it work. So my hope is that over the next uh, couple of weeks, georgia will actually have a model of what needs to be done to get out of this uh, out of this crisis
2: in the meantime what are you bracing for in terms of your hospital and and do you feel prepared with the equipment that you need the ventilators the masks the cleaning supplies and everything else
8: i would tell you that at this point in time the hospitals that i have in, i'm in contact with are in both you know grady hospital and emory university affiliated hospitals more than eight hospitals we're in good shape We have capacity, we have ventilators, we have supplies. So if patients continue coming in at the rate they're coming in, we will be fine. If there's a sudden huge spike in cases, we will obviously run into problems. But as long as there's not a sudden huge spike in cases, we will be fine. But of course we are preparing, we are worried, we are concerned, but at the end of the day, we need to be ready because this decision has been taken by the governor. And our job right now is really to, to scale up and to be ready and to do the right thing so we can actually be successful. We cannot let ourselves drown. This is a little bit like being in, a, in an ocean and the waters got rough. Our job right now is to swim and be sure we stay alive. And we, more importantly, I wanna be sure that we don't have patients die. I really want to decrease mortality disease.
2: Have you been in contact with the governor at all? Is there any communication going on from the medical community with the politicians?
8: Uh, if there has been, uh, I know there has been from the uh, CEOs of the hospitals. I've been in close contact with the director of the Department of Public Health, Dr. Kathleen Toomey. She and I communicate quite a bit. And again, I, 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 I think that she is doing what needs to be done. And I think she's reaching out to the appropriate people to really implement the programs she has to implement. She has a lot, big task ahead as far as scaling up testing, as far as doing contact tracing. But my way to reach into that into that. Decision-making is really through Dr. Catherine Toomey, which I've known for a long time.
2: We wish you well. Dr. Del Rio, thank you for joining us tonight.
8: Delighted to be with you.
2: There's a lot more ahead tonight on this CNBC special report.
4: Next tonight, the big fight between states and Senate leaders. The Senate that proposed it, I say... Pass a law allowing states to declare bankruptcy. I dare you. The worst-case scenario for states and the impact on you and your money next. Plus, business owners across this great nation on their fears, struggles, and triumphs. Before the break, images from around the USA on day 117 of the coronavirus crisis.
2: Welcome back. Tonight's headlines on the virus. The FDA warning against using malaria drugs, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19 outside of hospitals and clinical trials because of potential serious side effects. Navy officials recommending the aircraft carrier captain who was pushed aside after asking for help with an outbreak on his ship be reinstated. And New Jersey's governor will sign an executive order allowing renters to use their security deposits to pay their rent. A new battle is breaking out between new york governor andrew cuomo and seattle and senate leader mitch mcconnell over
1: state funding contessa brewer is with us live contessa sarah these are desperate times for state and local governments coronavirus has ramped up their spending and slashed their revenues in catastrophic ways unemployment claims have exploded most of which the states pay for Governments have hiring freezes or furloughed workers or even cut jobs. Altogether now, uh, a bipartisan bill has been introduced in the Senate to give states $500 billion in federal aid. It's unclear whether the Senate majority leader will allow it to come to a vote. And he explained why on a radio show with Hugh Hewitt.
9: I would certainly be in favor of allowing states to use the bankruptcy uh- some cities, and there's no good reason for it not to be available.
1: Well, Congress would have to amend federal bankruptcy law to allow states to file for bankruptcy. Today, Governor Cuomo in New York fired back. He just dared McConnell to introduce that legislation.
4: You want to send a signal to the markets that this nation is in real trouble? You want to send a international message that the economy is in turmoil, do that. Allow states to declare bankruptcy legally because you passed the bill. It'll be the first time in our nation's history that that happened.
8: I dare you to do that.
1: Even if Congress found the political will to do something like that, it has never been done in American history. There would be constitutional challenges because Article One declares no state is allowed to make contracts and then change the law to avoid the obligation. Sarah. Contessa, so what is the worst case
2: scenario for heavily indebted states like New York or Illinois?
1: Well, look, they're, they're talking about cutting services, right? The governor said today he's looking at a 13 or 14% revenue cut. But if they were able to declare bankruptcy, on the upside, it would give these states a fresh start. It would allow them to avoid obligations of paying pensions or paying vendors. On the downside, you would force state retirees into anti-poverty programs, which states pay. A bankruptcy judge, of course, has a lot of discretion, so you might see state parks, sold to real estate developers, for instance. We saw when Detroit went bankrupt, the city-owned art museum and its expensive collections were eyed as assets that potentially could be auctioned off. But probably the biggest impact if states were allowed to do this, just by amending the federal law to allow state bankruptcies, there would be a chilling effect on the bond market. It would drive up borrowing costs for all states, regardless of their pension obligations or their budget problems. That's according to the Council of State Governments. And look, when I talked about the pros and cons today with Professor Ken Katkin at Chase College of Law, he told me that borrowing is a better move for states. It's fairly easy to issue new bonds and then sell them to the Federal Reserve for low interest rates. I mean, some states would have to amend their constitutions to do that. But certainly a better political option than bankruptcy or raising taxes, Sarah. Contessa Brewer, thank you.
2: Next tonight, the path forward.
4: Tonight, we're clearing the stage for business owners from across the country to weigh in and tell us how they're faring. We'll hear from businesses having trouble with government programs and businesses finding creative ways to stay alive. Plus, real-world advice on navigating this mess. The Path Forward, next on CNBC.
9: The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
10: Every day, thousands of Comcast engineers and technologists put people at the heart of everything they create. Like Olu Sheyi, a Comcast engineer who grew up bonding with his dad over sports. This inspired him and his team to create AI Highlights Technology that uses AI and machine learning to detect the major plays in a sporting event. So millions of fans have a way of catching up on their favorite sports. Learn more at ComcastCorporation.com.
4: America is in pain. There are problems, questions, and concerns in every corner of the USA. But business owners, large and small, are working on their next step, their path forward. Tonight, business owners from across this great nation share their fears, their challenges, and their difficult choices. This CNBC special report, The Path Forward, begins right now. Once again, here's Sarah Eisen.
2: Good evening, everyone, once again. To help us through the next half hour, two people who invest in individual businesses. Michelle Romanow is the president and co-founder of ClearBank, which has stakes in thousands of e-commerce businesses. And Dave Dodson also invests in individual American businesses and teaches at Stanford. Good evening to both of you. Michelle, you invest in thousands of businesses. Give us a sense of what they're going through right now.
10: Yeah. I mean, it is a very tough environment today. And I really think this kind of breaks down into two pieces. There are the small businesses today that were strictly brick and mortar, and it has been incredibly tough for them with these shutdowns due to COVID. And then there are businesses that were built online or have some sort of online presence. And those ones today are actually faring much better. And so I think what we're seeing is a lot of businesses that are being creative, that are finding um, that online presence or figuring out how to build that now. It's never been cheaper um, to start that and ad prices have never been lower. And so I think, you know, if you were just brick and mortar, you're in a very tough place. And if you've been able to build some of this stuff online, uh, you're doing a lot better.
2: Dave, so many businesses are in a tough place. We were first introduced to you a few weeks ago on CNBC, where you joined us to grade as the professor that you are the small business relief program from the government. You weren't too happy, gave it a C minus or a D plus. There have been some changes and there are there is more money in that program right now. Where do you stand? Are you feeling better or worse?
5: Well, look, more is better. And my biggest complaint with the program prior to that is there just wasn't enough money. With small businesses and small organizations like nonprofits providing 60 percent of the jobs, they got 17 percent of the funds. Now, look, about 90 percent of companies in America have less than 100 employees. We are a small business environment. But we've got a Washington, D.C. that is run by big business. And you look at the people that are that are advising the administration right now, they're the heads of big banks, They're the heads of big computer companies. They're political consultants. They're not small business owners, and they don't understand what the small business owner is going through. So they put a payroll program in place that says you have to use three-quarters of the money for payroll when the average company only has 50% of their costs with payroll. And what about all the other businesses that might even be, you know, we were talking about brick-and-mortar companies a minute ago that have more like 25% of their uh, costs are with payroll. So the program does not fit with small business because it's not being designed by small business people.
2: Let's dive into that and talk to one small business owner. And if you would, stay with us, Michelle and Dave. She's one of the most sought-after makeup artists in Hollywood. She also created her own makeup sponge, which has been dubbed the best makeup tool in the business. But she's had to furlough 67 of her 115 employees. Joining us is Rianne Silva, founder of Beauty Blender. Rianne, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
11: Thank you for having me.
2: So, we understand you sell to stores like Sephora and Ulta, which I primarily closed across the country. Are you able to make up any of that lost business online?
11: Yes, thank God we are. And we're lucky that uh, between my operations business, which is based in Pennsylvania, we're able to really service our direct to consumer business. And um, I'm just very grateful for that because, like you said in the um, entree coming into this segment, um, You know, brick-and-mortar is basically closed down, so if your business is based in brick-and-mortar, it's a really tough time for you. Fortunately, we always did have other retailers, but it's tough all the way around, and for our direct-to-consumer business right now, we're finding that because luckily we did have maybe a small percentage of our business, maybe... It was probably 25 to 30 percent of our business was direct to consumer. Now we're seeing that that side of our business is really picking up.
2: In the meantime, are are you taking advantage of the government relief program we were just talking about?
11: You know, we applied for the PPP program and I have to say, I feel very fortunate that we were approved, but we have yet to see any money, (laughs) so (laughs) I'm, I'm expecting that it should come soon.
2: Dave, this is what we hear from so many small businesses. I mean, luckily, Rianne was able to, to get her application in, but the whole process has been a little messy.
5: Well, that's right. And if you're a landscaper, you own a lumber yard, you can't have an lo- online business. I mean, I'm really glad that you have that online business and you have something to fall back on. But my guess is that it's not enough because you have a cost structure that was set up for a different kind of business. And, you know, small businesses across the country, we can't just turn on a dime and all of a sudden have a completely different cost structure. And, you know, I feel for what, everything that you're going through and the changes that you're having to try to make to try to keep a business going. Um, and the fact yeah, that you have been approved for the PPP program and you don't have the money yet, you need it now. Is my guess.
11: Yeah, it's, it's, you're absolutely right. It's super challenging right now. We spend most of our time, you know, figuring out cost reduction at this point.
10: Yeah, and Brianne, could you see this as like a big opportunity? I know today it sounds like it's twenty five percent e-commerce, but you know even retailers like Sephora. I mean, they need to survive by also bringing up their e-commerce presence. So you could be, you know, their end of cart aisle or whatever it happens to be. Like, could this be a real opportunity to build those relationships with your end customers because you've built a killer brand?
11: Thank you. Yeah, you know I. <laughs> I tend to be a great lemonade maker, people tell me, and I feel like, you know, this is the biggest challenge of of my career. But I am looking at the bright side of things. Listen, digital has been uh, on my mind for several years. Uh, Recently, in the last year and a half, I launched a new website with a different, you know, better uh, infrastructure so that I could grow it. Um, Fortunately and unfortunately, I suppose, we were so busy in um, our traditional sales channels uh, brick and mortar globally, that you know we did grow our digital business, but not to the degree that I initially had envisioned so what 's happening now is that because brick and mortar is like we said closed, my digital business is uh, growing, and it 's going to be much better for us in the future because we are able to speak directly to our customers. And I think that's such a benefit for us moving forward because you know we're entering into the unknown new normal and we need to be closer to our consumers more than ever now.
10: Mm-hmm.
2: Michelle, what, what advice would you give to Rianne and others that have depended on these brick and mortar stores for so much of their business and now need to really ramp up the online business and the online presence or those that don't even have one and need to do so?
10: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um... I think the, the real message here and what a lot of small business owners are doing, and I get that this is very tough, is you can never be reliant on one channel for everything. You can never have your inventory just come from one factory. You can never just have one channel to sell to. And, you know, I think it was pretty incredible that you had built up even 30% of your business. I mean, in two years from now, this could be a huge part of your business where it's higher margin. You own the relationship with the end customer and you really get to control your brand. I mean, at ClearBank, we've got yeah, investment in 2200 um, different companies with some form of online presence. And so this can be a great opportunity um, for you to kind of build that resiliency into your business, even though it is a very tough time.
2: Rianne Silva, thank you so much for joining us from Beauty Blender tonight. Dave and Michelle, please stay with us because we have got a lot more ahead tonight on the path forward.
4: Next tonight, a Georgia business owner who's decided the governor is wrong about reopening. See what he's doing about it. And...
12: Small businesses are the engine and the backbone
4: of this country. How one landlord is pitching in to help the businesses that pay her for space. Before the break, images from around the world on day 117 of the coronavirus crisis.
2: Welcome back. Entrepreneur Tony Coe grew up working in her family's mom-and-pop shop. Now she's a commercial landlord who wants to take care of her small business tenants caught in the crisis tonight. How Tony Coe is stepping up.
12: I have about half a million square foot of rentable retail space in and around Los Angeles, all in commercial. Majority of my tenants are mom and pops, small business owners. My family is a first generation immigrant and we're small mom and pop business owners ourselves. And I have 100% empathy for what they're going through right now. You know, when you're a small business owner, you may be profitable on the paper, but you're always cash poor. At a moment of crisis like this, basically, you're just going to have to start dipping into your your retirement savings, maybe your um, children's college savings. And that's just not acceptable to me. So that's why I'm waiving 100% rent for April. Small businesses are the engine and the backbone of this country. And if the tenants do not survive, then you know what we're going to be left with? Walmarts, Targets, and Costcos. And I mean, is that the ideal world that we want to live in? So we all need to take a little bit of sacrifice for the good of all.
2: That was real estate investor Tony Coe stepping up. And Georgia, as we mentioned, once again, open for business as of today. But Honors Holdings, which owns 31 Orange Series studios in the state, is still closed. Jamie Weeks is the founder and CEO of The Gyms. So, Jamie, why did you decide to give it a few weeks before opening?
0: Hey, Sarah, thanks for having me. You know, we want to take a patient, balanced approach here. Um, I think all of us were a little surprised on Monday when the governor said we're going to allow gyms and fitness centers to open on Friday. And um, we're working closely with the Medical Advisory Board at Orange Theory and uh, following all the CDC guidelines and looking at everything. And I just I just don't feel like this is something we need to be rushing into. Um, I, I, we have to err on the side of people. We have to err on the side of our staff and our members first and foremost, and that's what we're going to do. and You know, I felt like I had to put a date out there. We circled May 18th as a date that we could possibly open, obviously knowing that we could always back that up if we need to. But again, I I just don't feel comfortable rushing into this decision. The data is coming in every single day. And every day we wait, we're learning more and more. And we're just, again, we're going to err on the side of people every time.
2: We just played a piece of tape showing that some commercial landlords are letting their clients not pay rent or forgive rent and temporarily halt Have you had to do that? Have you had to stop paying rent?
0: So uh, I'll tell you, we have got amazing relationships with landlords. Um, uh, Here in Georgia, we probably have of our 31 locations, maybe 25 different landlords. Uh, We've worked with all of them. They understand where we're coming from. I mean, listen, we we shut the doors on March 16th, a week before the state did. Um, uh, We will probably go 60 days without revenue. And so we're working with them. Uh, Some are allowing us to abate rent and put it at the end of the term. Uh, some are asking us to pay some now and pay some later, and um, it's a case-by-case situation. Uh, listen, I also understand where the landlords are coming from, right? We have a lot of la- mom-and-pop landlords that we work with, and so we're having just real discussions with them and trying to work with them, and they've been, they've been amazing with us.
2: Dave Dodson with us from Stanford University, a professor there of entrepreneurship. Dave, how prevalent is the rent forgiveness happening, and, and how much is it saving some of these small businesses?
5: Well, I think it's very prevalent. I would say that virtually every company that I've talked to has had to go to their landlord and ask for some forgiveness, and in some cases they get it, some cases they don't. I mean, I really admire the landlord in Los Angeles who was saying that they were doing what they were doing, because it's such a struggle, and they, of course, they need tenants too in the end. So I understand there's some interest, but I think the landlords are having to carry a disproportionate burden. And by the way, you know, for your for your chain down in in Georgia, you know, I really admire the way you must have been running your business for so long for your landlords to cooperate like they like they do. I mean, they must really want you as a tenant, which says something about the way you've been running your business thus far. But I'm sort of curious, as you think about, you know, getting through this with zero revenue, which who plans for zero revenue, right? But as you get through zero revenue, right. what does it going to look like afterwards? And are, are customer behavior gonna change? And is this, are you gonna be doing more online classes and more sort of subscription-based uh, services at home?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, listen, uh we've got a million members at Orange Theory here in the United States and our online classes the last uh 6 weeks have been a huge success they've been amazing yeah. um our coaches are, are conducting them uh, we're getting great responses from members i do think that's something we're going to continue doing um even if we're you know 2 years from now back to 100% a year from now 90 days from now whatever it is we're going to continue doing that because there's a demand there we know it and it's 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 great i think it's wonderful um uh so so i'm i'm hoping that there's a great balance as we go forward uh, between online classes and then also the energy inside of Orange Theory Studio is something we can never replace. And so uh, when we get back to open and having that energy and also having the chance to have online classes, whether you're traveling and can't work out or whatever it is, well, that sense of convenience to be able to get that workout in is pretty awesome.
10: And Jamie, I commend you for for doing the responsible thing. And that part of that energy you're building from both your classes and instructors is huge. How have your employees responded um, to not opening? have they been supportive as well?
0: Yeah, they have. Uh, We've been fortunate. Uh, We've continued to pay our employees. Uh, We made a conscious decision in the early stages of this. That was something that I wanted to do, uh, to continue to pay them and continue to keep them employed. Um, you know, I, I feel that, and, and this is what we've we really talked a lot about with the employees. We have a younger staff, right? Our average age of our staff is probably 27 or 28 years old. They're in fitness. They've never experienced anything like this. I mean, the three of us have never experienced anything like this either. And so we're learning and going through this together. Um, but I think, listen, between the members and the staff, and, and I'm in close contact with both, um, they're telling us they're not ready. They're telling that the the coaches are putting all their time and effort into coaching these online classes. We're getting great reception there. So listen, if there's a silver lining here, it's that for sure. Uh, But you just cannot replace the energy, like you said, Sarah, of of a a Orange Theory workout in the class.
2: Jamie Weeks, we wish you good luck on on the reopening in just a few weeks. Thank you for joining us tonight.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah.
2: Well, from gyms to swimming pools, John Helan owns Ripple Swim School in Rhode Island. He was on track to have his best year ever when the state shut down and the $2 million in revenue he was looking forward to absolutely evaporated. John, thank you for phoning in tonight. So tell us what's going on with your business right now and how, if at all, are you able to keep it afloat?
13: Yeah, thanks for having me, Sarah. We, uh, we're not. We closed March 13th. We followed suit with the local school system. So when the Governor uh, announced schools were closed. We decided to close as well. It wasn't mandatory at that point. It just felt like the right thing to do for safety of the staff and the students. So, um, yeah, we, we, we went dark as of, uh, as of the 13th. We've been closed ever since.
2: Michelle, what would you tell businesses that bring in no revenue like John's that have to close down about how to preserve capital to be able to open up when things do start to open?
10: Look, John, I really feel for you. Like this is an extremely tough place to have been in a, you know, close contact activity. You can't teach someone how to swim very well over Zoom. I mean, maybe you could a little bit. Um, and so I think, you know, really going back, um, very admirable of what we just saw the previous landlord do to see if there's any relief that you can get there. And then I think even at this really tough time, you know, looking at what you could do that's innovative. I mean, every every parent has their kids at home. They're probably driving them crazy. And if there's any programming that you could offer um, that's, you know, sort of fitness related for kids, I think parents might be willing to pay for that right now. I don't know what you think.
13: Sure, yeah, we're, um, you know, it's been an interesting few weeks as we kind of figure out, I guess, the, the short term, how long will we be closed? And then the longer term, what does life look like after this? So um, we were fortunate in the sense that we had planned on a pretty extensive renovation at our first location, which has been open about five years now. Um, ironically enough, I got the building permits to do the work the day we had to close. Uh, but we had a pretty big war chest saved up for that renovation. So obviously the renovation is going to get bumped out. The war chest, I feel pretty confident will get us through you know however long we need to be closed and and more than likely any kind of slow business that may um happen once we do kind of reopen so we're lucky in that sense and so we've gone out you know ppp program we've gotten idle loan program we've applied for so um yeah it's it's interesting trying to like you said figure out what's the solution um for a, a close contact business and what could be a, a no close contact environment going forward but we're looking at different ways to kind of re-engineer the business whether it's uh safety equipment, you know, capacity, spacing kids out in different ways, um, kind of structuring the lessons in a different way. So we're looking at a few things.
5: Yeah, you know, what, I, what I've what i noticed when companies have had distress like this and nothing like what you're having, which is zero revenue, the most common mistake that business owners make is, you know, you went into business and business owners are optimistic. And that optimism is usually your, your friend. But when times are tough, it's your enemy and people don't cut close, they don't cut their costs enough and they don't plan for the worst case scenario so i would just say you know guard against that optimism that made you want to be an entrepreneur and open up a business that may be your enemy right now because things could be tough for quite a few months and i'm, I'm sorry sure, to yeah. say that
13: yeah I, uh, I i take some flack from my wife but i i always hope for the best but plan for the worst so it really is a matter of right now um like i said the, the savings we have a pretty decent runway so i feel good about that and you know trying to figure out what the other side of this looks like but um, you know, we, we kind of came out swinging immediately once we closed in terms of, um, ratcheting down expenses, uh, loan deferments, um, our bank, we work with Webster Bank. They've been great working with us on stuff like that. Right. Uh, plus, you know, the idle loan, the triple P loan that came through. So, um, all things considered, I feel pretty good right now with, with everything that's going on. And, you know, some of the other small business owners, I speak to some are feeling better than others, but, um, all things considered, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good, which is kind of new as of this week, but that, that's kind of where we're at.
5: Get to the other side.
2: Oh, that's good to hear, John. Yep. yep. Thank you very much for joining us. Best of luck to you. And coming up next, Fear and Triumph for a Furniture Maker in Los Angeles. Welcome back. Our sister network, Telemundo, is partnering with the U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce to launch our businesses to provide research resources and guidance to small and medium sized Hispanic owned businesses hit by the crisis. For more, go to telemundo.com. Sticking with small biz, Kim Salmala is the CEO of Kim Salmala Atelier, a furniture manufacturer in Los Angeles. She's been paying her eight employees since shutting down five weeks ago and just received a PPP loan from the government. Kim, thanks so much for phoning in tonight. Good to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. What will you do with the government funding that you just received?
14: Well, it is going towards as much payroll as I can and then also rent, Um, as you know, or as a lot of people know, 75% of the loan must be used to pay payroll and then the balance of the 25% can be used for
2: rent.
5: Dave Dodson with
2: us as well from Stanford. Dave?
5: Yeah, we've been telling everybody it's about liquidity, liquidity, liquidity. And, of course, you have inventory and you have employees and you've got brick and mortar and anything that you can do to hang on to cash. And, you know, one advantage you have that other companies don't have is you have inventory that you can work with. So I would say anything you can to stay alive with liquidity is the name of the game.
14: Yeah, because of the nature of my business, um, you know, everything we make uh, is to or- is everything is made to order. So we are not, um, we do not have a lot of stock. So the the problem is we're still getting orders, but um, those have to just be backlogged until we can open up again. I don't have a ton of stock. We're trying to sell what we can, um, but the challenge with manufacturing is that we've lost these two months and we'll never get it back.
5: And the PPP loan is not enough to keep your employees uh, active for manufacturing the furniture?
14: Well, we're we are restricted. We must stay at home. So we we can't can't manufacture.
2: So, Kim, are are you selling how are you getting rid of the excess inventory? Are you selling it online? Yeah, we've so a large part of
14: my portion, a large portion of my business is through e-commerce through other websites. Um, the big one is One Kings Lane. Um, I do sell through my website also. So what we do have stock of, we've run a big pillow sale on my website. Um, I am still trying to get out orders with One Kings Lane that we can of items that are that are around. But as of now, I looked at my production schedule and we're booked out through almost the middle of June with orders and we're still getting orders in. I've been really fortunate in that um, I deal with the medium to high end clientele and they're stuck in their homes right now and everyone you know, wants to make their homes more beautiful, more comfortable. So we continue to get orders in. I just can't do anything about uh, making the, or- the orders and shipping right now.
10: Kim, first of all, Michelle, congratulations.
14: is that a
2: phenomenon that, that you've been seeing? Oh, go ahead. Yeah.
10: I mean, it's right now, you're 100% right. People are stuck in their homes and they are looking for improvements because we're seeing all of the things. And, you know, congratulations to you that you've actually seen. It sounds like in some ways your business has grown during this period. I know that some of the things you do are hand sewing like pillows. Could people do that at home? Could you use the opportunity to use manufacturers in different places to do this? Are any of those kind of an option to you right now? Because it sounds like you've actually been able to get more demand for your product uh, throughout this period, which is awesome. Yeah, I
14: actually the writing on the wall before we were shut down on March 19th, and I sent my sewer home. She um, had uh, had uh, a, 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 a scare with uh, cancer, cancer a few years ago, so I was very, very worried about her. So we literally That's brought machines like, right to, to mean, her house, and sure. she is sewing. Um, she's yeah. sewing pillows out of her garage right now.
2: Kim Samala, thank you so much for joining Kim. us. We wish you well. Thank you so much. And finally, Dave Dotson, you know, it's been somewhat encouraging to hear a lot of these small business owners that we talked to on this program have either received their PPP funding from the government or are awaiting it. Is that going to stem the tide of losses for small businesses and for employment across America?
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is, as I said earlier, this is about getting to the other side. And with the PPP loan, if they can get the loans and they can get to the front of the line, that's what they need to survive. And we've told everybody, I don't care if you're on your hands when you cross the finish line, get across the finish line.
2: We want to thank all of our businesses for joining us, all the small business owners tonight, especially thanks to you two, Dave Dotson and Michelle Romanoff for sticking with me. From all of us here at CNBC, I'm Sarah Eisen. American Greed is coming up next.
1: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.